Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Pride Mix here at Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dusty. June is LGBTQIA plus Pride Month. And during the month of June, our trail mix episodes are called Pride Mixes. Pride Mix is a chance for us to dive deep into queer history and in some cases how queer history intersects with the National Parks and the National Parks Service's role as America's storyteller. In the last two years of Pride Mix, we've turned our focus on events and people in history, specifically in New York and San Francisco, to help illuminate the contribution of queer people in the LGBTQ plus movement. From Bayard Rustin and Marsha P. Johnson to Crystal Jang and Margaret Chung, these trailblazers in fighting for queer rights helped to create greater visibility and push the issues that were important in securing greater liberties for queer people of their time and afterward. Their stories are those of hardship, but also triumph, and their advocacy and action helped to create a better future than would have been provided otherwise. As we took the time to reflect on our previous Pride Mix episodes and exploring where we might invest our gaze in the breadth of history that could illuminate such other figures who may often be glanced over over, we realized that in this moment, we are all living through history. The last several years have been nothing shy of a tumult in world affairs. The atrocities that have been committed through war and acts of aggression and the loss and helplessness we have felt through the pandemic has certainly challenged everyone. And while these events continue and go on seemingly without end, social issues and laws, specifically those targeted against the queer community, have bubbled to the surface as well. These laws are regressive, they are harmful, and they are baselessly driven by legislators and politicians who, rather than dealing with social issues and injustices, kowtow to an increasingly aggressive and radical right conservative Christian base. In this week's Pride Mix, we'll be discussing the legal history of queer people within the United States. So what do you know about queer legal history? And maybe where did you learn it? Well, I didn't learn it in school. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. You don't say. Um, I feel like I learned a lot about queer legal history at my first Pride Parade. 
Okay. First time I ever went, I felt like that's where there were pamphlets. That's where, you know, there were people who were informed. That's where I learned about Lambda Legal. That's where I learned about the ACLU. I mean, it was like all the people who gathered to say like, this is where we are and we're proud of where we are, but also this is where we have to get to. Right. And this is what we have to keep working toward. Right. I feel like, yeah, literally out in the streets. That's where I learned <laughs> about that queer the history. the only thing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what about you? Yeah, I feel like I probably learned, honestly, a lot from you. You're like, you know, my uh, queer lineage is right here in front of me. (laughs) And then through my own research, because I definitely didn't learn about it in school either. I feel like even in college, like that wasn't... No. Like I wish there was like um, a queer like history class, because that is not something that existed when I was in school at all. So... Yeah, I feel like you have been the Virgil to my Dante in so many ways when it comes to being a gay person in this world because you have bequeathed me with so much information. (laughs) I chose that word specifically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know that there's so much more queer history than just Stonewall. And I feel like Stonewall is one event in queer history that as we have unpacked many times in previous Pride mixes is an event that activists glom onto glom onto or did at the time in order to get traction for the cause. I think it's sort of like it is. It's sort of like the um, the Lexington and Concord of queer rights. Sure. Or queer, you know, the battle for queer rights and liberty. Whereas there was obviously stuff that came before it that led up to it. But it is this sort of like um, inflection point. It is. It is an inflection point that got turned into a major moment because it was a moment where people could go like, oh, we're not going to take it anymore. True. But also this is getting press. Yeah. Let's attach ourselves to the press that this is getting. But I didn't even learn about that as an adult until I was walking by Stonewall Inn with like a much older gay friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And like we were with a whole bunch of theater folk, as we call ourselves. And um, I think it's theater theater (laughs) folk. He was like, oh, yeah, this is where this happened. And this is what happened. And no, even like as the 23 year old who at the time, I think I had just recently come out out of the closet, still didn't know about that. Like I'd known a little bit about some things but like not about that yeah which is a real bummer that's why we have places like new jersey who now require queer history to be taught right curriculum yep in the curriculum stay tuned for our other pride mix episode that dives deep into the don't stay gay bill and obviously why that's problematic but all of the reasons why that's problematic right but yes but today we're just looking at just the the glance of <laughs> legal blows against the history queer of the queer community and our legal rights in America. When it comes to learning queer history, especially queer legal history, there's a lot to unpack and digest. Laws that affected LGBTQ plus individuals have basically been on the books for as long as America has been America, or to say as long as Europeans have colonized America. In order to better digest this. There are a great number of resources to investigate, but the NPS's 2016 LGBTQ America 
a theme study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer history, does a great job of offering a concise overview of how these laws were impactful and the scope of their impact. When Europeans first colonized the land, also known as North America, several laws were put into place that essentially barred non-marital or non-procreative sex, which essentially were laws aimed at same-sex intercourse. These laws would come to affect not only these white and most likely Christian settlers, but also the indigenous peoples of the land, also known as America, who didn't have the same views of sexuality and gender as the Europeans. While there were death penalty laws in place for the, quote, crime of sodomy, end quote, in much of colonial America, these laws were replaced with, quote, less extreme penalties, including castration, whipping, life imprisonment, and lengthy prison terms, end quote. While many states lessened the severity of these laws, this was not often the case for enslaved Africans who would still receive the death penalty for their transgressions or accused transgressions. In the early 1800s through the time of the Civil War, many states and cities passed laws against cross-dressing, sodomy, buggery, lewd or indecent plays, and obscenity in many forms. These laws were used to police same-sex intercourse and, quote, non-normative sex, gender, and sexuality, end quote. All this is still happening now. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> humans are humans. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also, like, good Lord, no fun. Nobody had any fun. <laughs> Thanks, a no fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Puritans. Thanks a lot, Puritans. The Comstock Act passed by Congress in 1873 prohibited the mailing of obscenity. Through the next century, this law was used time and time again to censor LGBTQ speech and expression. As immigration rose in the post-Civil War era, laws were passed to deny individuals and specific groups entry to the United States based on a variety of factors related to sexuality and orientation. In a post-Civil War America, state and local governments really led the charge as they enacted a variety of laws that dealt with what they defined as indecency. Quote, these were supplemented by new laws against disorderly conduct, immorality, indecency, lewdness, loitering, solicitation, and vagrancy. These ambiguously defined statutes used more frequently than laws against sodomy, buggery, and crimes against nature provided local authorities with a broad discretion to arrest individuals for various reasons. People of color, poor people, immigrants, and people who violated gender norms were distinctly vulnerable, end quote. Okay, so here is what a beautiful example in our books of how we just equate queerness with solicitation mm-hmm. and equating queerness with indecency and equating queerness with immorality and lewdness and crimes against nature and crimes against nature or as the word that you know people like to throw around today indoctrination mm-hmm. which is obviously bullshit mm-hmm. and um but here's like a perfect example of like how queerness and against the law have been synonymous. Like they've been synonymous since we started creating laws in America. But here's an exact wordage of like how that started to get equated. Right. I think the thing that surprised me, although it shouldn't, is that even back then, poor people, people of color people who defied gender norms were the ones that were more frequently targeted and that even if laws were repealed in some cases or the severity of their punishment lessened, those people didn't have that luxury of those lessened sentencing or lessened severity, which is like (laughs) the tale as old as time in America. It's like, I don't know how you don't look at all of this and be like, A, we are a very bad place. This is a bad place. (laughs) We're No, we're in the bad place. (laughs) Right. Right. 
Um, and B, how you can't see the correlation from the past that's still going on today. That is 1000% still a part of the fabric of this, dare I say, rotting society from the inside out. It's incredible, but it's not surprising. It's just sad. Yeah. Also, I just want to, you know, n- I'm no legal expert, but like all of these words are subjective. Indecency, subjective. Word. Sure. You can't, you yeah. can't actually. Um, def- ambiguously. You, you can't quantify yes. indecency. You yes. can't quantify lewdness, loitering. I mean, you could maybe quantify solicitation depending on exactly what went down. But like, you know, immorality, all of it is subjective. Sure. Ambiguously defined laws. Is, Ambiguously defined yeah. laws. Yep. Lewdness and obscenity laws went into place in various cities and states, some of which carried with them the penalty of indefinite sentencing for what was deemed as degenerate behavior or that of individuals who were labeled as, quote, mental defectives, end quote. These laws also extended out of the bedroom and into the bar as liquor laws and liquor licenses were granted with the caveat that those who were served demonstrated a good moral character and were in no way disreputable, which had an impact on establishing that were frequented by queer people. The military also had a large swath of laws which impacted the service of those deemed homosexual or transsexual. In 1920, Congress made sodomy in the U.S. military illegal, lumping oral sex into its definition as well. In 1921, laws were enacted that allowed for the rejection of recruits based on what was deemed to be sexual perversion or anybody that may, in fact, be too feminine. These laws were eventually relaxed during wartime only to be reinstituted toward the end of World War II. We got to talk about too feminine because um, y'all, I just want to say something about this. Um, and that is that that is not a controllable thing. As somebody who lives in a body that is very much like, you know, my pronouns are he, him. I do identify as male, but the, I got a lot of feminine energy running through here. And that's not something that I can turn off. It's simply not something. You got plenty of it running through you, too. Sure. Um, (laughs) As you turn an accusatory glance to the quiet sister in the corner over here. I was letting you be. supportive sister. Your soapbox for a minute. No, but it's true. But you like had fire in your But it's true because I don't love the words masculine or feminine, frankly. I mean, I understand why there are words and why what we use them for. I get it. But like I, I could write seven. 17,000 different doctoral dissertations on masculinity and femininity and still we really wouldn't understand what it was. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into like how it's defined or what it is, but we all kind of know it when we see it. You know what I mean? Uh, The same goes with masculinity. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like there have never been any laws ever that have been used to... um, Police masculinity. Police masculinity or bodies that may be in fact quote, too masculine. Sure. Never been ever a discussion. Here's another example of how femininity is seen as less than in law. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So for those of you who may have, you know, like uh, queer people in their bodies around you who have a lot of, you know, various feminine, masculine energy running through it, see that as an asset to yourself and the group that uh, you surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. 
The same laws that affected the military also took aim at veterans and veterans' benefits and soon extended beyond the military and into public service during the Cold War. Laws were enacted that would specifically bar or discharge individuals who were queer. Cold War America saw scores of laws that affected the queer community. Some of these penalties were merely jail time, but others went so far as to institute castration. And in several states, to be listed as a sex offender for being queer or for being arrested for homosexual offenses. These laws would continue to more vastly affect the poor, people of color, and immigrants within the queer community. In the 1950s, teachers, medical professionals, and lawyers came into the crosshairs in California and Florida in relation to their queerness. Calls for licenses to be revoked or denied to these professions were all fair game in this hunt to oust queer individuals. Despite these insurmountable odds and legislation driven by ignorance and hatred, it is in the 1950s and 60s that organizations began to push back and advocate for change. Quote, groups such as the Mattachine Society, one, the Daughters of Belitis, the Janus Society, the Erickson Educational Foundation, and the Society for Individual Rights. LGBTQ activists supported reform with educational lobbying and litigation campaigns, but also engaged in direct action, end quote. Groups like the American Law Institute, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Homosexual Law Reform Society, and the National Legal Defense Fund, among others, helped to bring about policy changes and challenge laws. Advocacy, protesting, and more Marching helped to put a face to individuals and allies, which also put pressure on politicians and lawmakers to adjust, decriminalize, or lessen the sentencing of laws in state and local governments for acts targeted against queer individuals. The 1960s were a mixed bag in relation to legal victories for queer individuals. While there were some landmark cases, including challenges to censorship by One Magazine and Physique Pictorial Magazine, other cases related to employment and dismissal based on being gay or being accused of being gay had both victories and losses. The 1970s saw a surge of advancements in organizations related to LGBTQ plus rights. Fueled by the Stonewall riots, grassroots organizations like Gay Liberation Front, Gay Rights National Lobby, Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights, among others, sprang into existence. Across the country, sodomy laws began to be repealed by a number of states. Some of the earliest cases of parental rights for queer individuals reached courtrooms. Anti-discrimination and hate crime legislation against queer people began to be signed into law in some places, and in 1979, the U.S. Surgeon General announced that the U.S. Public Health Service no longer viewed homosexuality as a mental illness. We. <laughs> The 1970s and 80s saw a surge of queer individuals who ran for and in some cases won their bid for office in state and local government and those who, while in office, came out. But as much as there were legal advancement and better representation in government, there were also setbacks, animosity from the Christian right, and a lack of legal standing in some cases. While there were advancements in repeal of sodomy laws and enactment of anti-discriminatory laws based on sexual orientation and hate crime legislation on the books in a smattering of places, these laws were still very much so in the minority nationwide, while in some cases, more regressive laws were being redefined or updated to more aggressively target LGBTQ plus individuals. Supreme Court cases which challenged guardianship of children, 
marriage rights of LGBTQ plus individuals and partners' rights oftentimes were major setbacks to the momentum of victories elsewhere. The specter of HIV-AIDS, which hung over the LGBTQ plus community as a, quote, gay disease, end quote, helped to fund a new round of hate, exclusion, and laws which provided more hardship and heartache. In the 1990s, Don't Ask, Don't Tell became the military's answer to dishonorable discharges and the witch hunt for queer individuals within the military. While in the realm of popular culture and celebrity, artists, actors, and activists became loud voices for change and acceptance. In the early 2000s, same-sex marriage began to be recognized by some states before the Supreme Court ruling in 2015 in Obergefell v. Hodges canonized it into the law of the land. This legal feat would open a doorway that had long been shut and allow for greater advancements in other areas for queer individuals. So why do you think it's important, not just for queer people, but for everyone, to have a basic understanding of queer history? I think that... I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's important that people have even a basic understanding of queer history. Because one, as humans, when we don't understand something, you know, like people talk about being evolved, right? Mm -hmm. To me, the threshold for evolution for a person is when you as a human can be evolved enough to say, that's something I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Rather than responding to it with disgust, you respond to it with curiosity as an opportunity to learn. That's evolution. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is like a giant long timeline of America as a country learning to meet queer people with curiosity and understanding Mm -hmm. versus, I mean, I still don't feel like we fully do that. No. Not at all. No. But rather than with like disgust and punishment. (laughs) Right. Which there are still plenty of people fighting going like, oh, well, no, we need to always meet this with disgust and punishment, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Like, um, the other the other thing is that, you know, uh, it's finite. Things are finite. Yeah. And so, you know, we've fought long and hard. I mean, we haven't, the, but, you know. Generations. The queer generations mm-hmm. before us have fought long and hard in order to, you know, so that we can enjoy the liberties mm-hmm. and the rights that we have now. And that, um, you know, as we see trending in America, that, you know, rights can be taken away right. just as easily as they were fought for. Right. So in the same way that, you know, it just takes like one person to ghost another in order for a relationship to be just over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So, right. Like, if we don't want America to ghost queer people, then we have to keep going. I think, you know, it also goes back to the adage that if you don't learn your history, then you are doomed to repeat it. And if nothing else, on top of what you said, I think we are repeating so many past sins and so many past errors that through activism, outreach, litigation, law have been corrected, or at least adjusted for a better future for people, Um, whether they're queer, whether they're people of color, whether they're women. And we are regressing in so many ways. It's astounding on one level. But then when you realize that education, especially public education, has continued to be demonized and fought against and defunded, you have to wonder, you know, or you have to really connect the fact that people aren't learning their history, people aren't understanding, people aren't being nurtured and educated in the way that they should be to understand these things. And so that lack of understanding, that lack of knowledge of history is really a detriment to everyone, but especially people in the minority. And to add to that, that um, educating young people does not traumatize them or harm them. It enlightens them. 
else, hopefully, this brief primer into queer legal history has given you a glimpse into how these laws are stacked against those in the minority. Whether it is queer history, the history of people of color or indigenous people or women, it is evident that the odds are consistently stacked against us. Pride is a time for remembrance, not just for our queer community, but for all people. Remembrance of those who have come before you and the mark they have left in the tapestry of queer history. It is also a time of renewal, a renewal of your space in that queer history and a reflection on what kind of mark you may make in the continued fight for the rights of not only queer individuals, but all who find themselves marginalized and in the minority. The sources for today's Pride Mix include the MPS's 2016 LGBTQ, America, a theme study of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer history, and the American Psychological Association's article, History of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Social Movements. If you're looking to help, get involved locally. Find out where the local queer nonprofit organizations are and donate your time and money. If you are looking to donate to some larger organizations and nonprofits which actively work to protect LGBTQ rights, visit the Pride Law Fund at pridelawfund.org, the Fund for Global Human Rights at globalhumanrights.org, and Lambda Legal at lambdalegal.org. This has been Pride Mix by Gays at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to pride early and pride often and that your pride means nothing unless it's intersectional. Gays at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at gays at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gays at the National Parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gays at the National Parks.com. That's gays, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website and in the Gay Shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge while recording this episode, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Ocean County, New Jersey. 